The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Neither rain nor sleet nor the great Skype outage of 2007 will keep us from eventually making our weekly visit to the virtual hangar. Stifling a few yawns, the UCAP gang stayed up past their normal bedtimes a day late to catch up on the latest GA news and gossip. We get an update on Randy's annual. We wax philosophical about how even the best forced landings can go awry, and we spend a lot of time solving the problem of the decreasing pilot population. All this and more on Uncontrolled Airspace, episode number 43, just your basic flib. Anna one, Anna one, Anna one, Anna one, Anna one, Anna one. Welcome everybody. Welcome to episode number forty-three of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Let's see now. We're recording this one. We're recording this one at a, a fairly non-standard time here. Anybody who's been following along on the blog knows that uh, that we were victims of the uh, the infamous Skype voice over IP failure of two thousand and seven. And we're unable to record the podcast on our normal uh, Thursday morning, and we've been kind of on hold, or as I've been saying in the blog, holding short for uh, a couple of days now. It's now, God help us, 10 o'clock on Friday night, and we're just beginning to East Coast time. Uh, Like I was saying earlier, this is one of the few times that I'm actually feeling a little jealous of the Central Time guys who are an hour earlier. Uh, But... uh, but finally, we're here, and we're uh, we're gathered in the virtual hangar, and we're going to talk for about an hour about whatever strikes our fancy. Or that is, until us East Coasters fall asleep. Let's say hi to the other folks here in the virtual <laughs> hangar. Um, Dave Higdon is here. Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor at Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. He's talking to us from the number one place in the Midwest to live the good life cheaply. Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> Where did you good come e- up with that? <laughs> yeah. Was, good evening, everybody. Uh, I, hope, I, hope, I hope nobody is in the path of a hurricane or a thunderstorm and has got a weekend of flying ahead of them. Yeah. So uh, I had just way too much spare time on my hands last night, and I'm surfing the net, and, uh, well, you know, you, you, you're going to just have to suffer through it. Also with us this evening in the virtual <laughs> hangar is Jeb Burnside. Jeb is a freelance aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine and also as a contributing editor to AvWebBiz. He's talking to us from the home of the world-famous Mixing Bowl Highway Interchange, Springfield, Virginia. Ah! S- <laughs> Spring- Springfield, Virginia wasn't quite as easy. I, I, got, I came up with the famous Mixing Bowl Highway Interchange, which, as I recall, Jeb, you gave a more earthy name to when I was when you were giving. Um, I think it was something along the lines of Charlie Foxtrot. Yeah, there you go, something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. 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 The, the Mixing Bowl thing is usually preceded by an adjective or two. That's right. Yes, yes. Alternately, colorful I, euphemism. Alternately, I could have referred to Springfield, Virginia, as the birthplace of Heather Graham um, or the Gateway. Oh, really? To, or the gateway Are to Burke, kidding? Virginia. I did, yeah. I did not know that this was the birthplace of Heather Grant. There you go, huh? See? Wow. Yeah, I that, did that, know that, it was the gateway to Burke. Yeah, yeah. And that, once you've been went, to Burke, there's it no It just went up back. a notch in my book with a reference to Heather Graham. Oh, but, no doubt. Um, 
Hi, Jeb. Uh, the, How you doing this evening? I, I'm spiffy. The only uh, the only thing I would want to say about Springfield is Springfield, spiffy. Virginia, was not in the running to be the Springfield per the recent contest conducted by the Simpsons program. Oh, oh man. Okay. There was, they didn't well, even enter. They didn't even enter. There's really no. It's it's more of a political subdivision. Uh, than it is a city or a town. There's no city council. There's no town hall. There's nothing like that. It's it's just kind of a, a different zip code within this. Oh man, that means country. no chief Wiggums. No chief. Yep, that's right. That's right. We have no nuclear power plant. Um, <laughs> well, you we have got Congress close by. That should count. Which which is a sufficient generator of heat and, and warm air that. Uh, uh, yeah, we don't need a nuclear power plant. But uh, Also in the um, hangar with us this evening is Randy Dufault. <laughs> Randy is a freelance aviation writer, a fellow AirVenture Today staffer, a Cessna owner, and also a fellow technology geek. And Randy's taught <laughs> and, and, from the coldest big city in America, the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul. Hi, Randy. How you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm doing great. The, uh, <laughs> See what you've gotten yourself yeah, I, into here, Randy, agreeing to be on this thing with us, right? especially late at yeah, night like this. Yeah, well, I, I figured, you know, the Cessna owners have to stick together, Jack. I, absolutely. I figured we got them, I got them outnumbered now for the first time since we've been doing this thing. So Yeah, but we're, even two, two Skyhawks back-to-back ain't going to be faster than the Bonanza. Uh, well, uh, you know, fa- it ain't all about fast. Yeah, well, it depends true. on what you're uh, metering. The, 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 drain, the drain on the bank account or the knots. Well, right. there is that, yeah. Well, let's yeah. talk about that Cessna, but first let me say that I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media pro- producer, and I'm here at the hub of the universe, the birthplace of the American Revolution, and famous for its beans, Boston, Massachusetts. So uh, I just... Hub of the universe. Hub of the universe, absolutely. That's what how, how, how do you figure that? I, it beats the heck out of me, but I'm sticking with it. That's, is this something you, you have Googled to apply last night? No. That's where you have to apply the most grease. No, 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 no. All my life we've referred to Boston as the hub. Boston is the hub. And uh-huh. that's, that's short for the hub of the universe. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's, it's, we've been talking about all sorts of people's airplane annuals uh, and the inspections and the uh, resulting uh, uh uh, repairs that uh, or improvements, repairs, whatnot, and uh, we talked about Randy's in the past, and I think I think you've got you've got good news for us, right, Randy? What's oh, the latest? Well, I'm uh, uh, I have the big itch. I'll tell you, I, I, I the I was certainly expecting to to have uh, to be reporting that that I'd be up in the air and and uh, uh, everything was running fine. We started it up on Tuesday. Yeah. And uh, it started great, ran great, um, and uh, there were a couple of outstanding anomalies, uh, like the flaps didn't work for some reason, but we got that fixed. And then, uh, but uh, after running the engine up a bit, um, my friendly neighborhood A&P was checking the tolerances on things in the engine, and we came up with some push rods that were uh, were out of spec. So I was there, I was uh, out at the airport yesterday um, fixing the flaps, and uh, um, and we had so far come up with three push rods that needed to be replaced, and we were still mm-hmm. waiting for a couple of those to show up. So, yeah. Were they bent? Uh, no, uh, just out of spec. The, um, the, the engine, um, I don't know if I, I think I shared before that the crankcase, and I think probably the crank had something in excess of 10,000 hours on them. 
the particular cylinders that are on it now are on their second time around, so they have, uh, they were just uh, on the last overhaul, just uh, brought up to spec, and, um, and so they have about 400 hours and change on them since the overhaul, uh, but um, the, the push rods that were on there probably have 2,600 to 3,000 hours on them, and, and uh, apparently a couple of them were a little shorter than they should be. Huh. Ah. Well, those are fairly common items, though. You, don't have, you won't have to wait long to get those, will you? No, no. My fact is, uh, for all I know, I didn't make it out to the airport today. I, I, I really suspect they showed up today, and I was going to stop out in the morning. And uh, the other interesting aspect of the annual is the uh, we've had we had some real interesting weather come through uh, come through the Twin Cities on Monday night, and again on um, well, I guess it was last weekend, then again on Monday night. And in one of those storms, the lightning took out my A&P's computer. (laughs) (laughs) It happened to have all of the airplane records on it. Oh, man, yeah. Okay, so, yeah. He had a good backup, though, right? Yeah, actually, he did. He he had a very good backup, and, uh, uh, but his, like, computer's gone, (laughs) so... Uh, it, there were some things on on his disk drive that he was trying to recover. Um, I think I've heard stories of that before. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's not go there. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, there's a markup on these push rods, so I wouldn't be the least bit surprised to see him with a brand new computer next week. Yeah. 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 And uh, no, actually, he's been really good about uh, about the uh, the aviation the total aviation maintenance unit load in this in this whole mm-hmm. deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Uh, um, so he was kind of waiting to get his computer back, and uh, and and was working on the logbook entries. And um, he gave me a couple of CDs and said, "Here, print off the the AD compliance stuff." And I and I stuck it in my computer, and I couldn't make it work. So I got to go out there hmm. in the morning and see if we could figure all that out. But uh, uh, so you're but, getting close. Uh, yeah, we're getting darn close. I mean, when you're down to the paperwork, that's uh, yeah. That's a good sign. Well, yeah. are, are you going to be able to fly this airplane before the season's over? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, the flap thing was really interesting. We had had, uh, it was intermittent, and uh, um, I'm they always sure are. We all had intermittent problems. And it, what it turned out to be was a broken wire up in the wing. Huh. And it was a ground wire. So it was apparently contacting ground somewhere. And the only time it really didn't contact ground was when it was really, really cold out. Hmm. And so when we flew the airplane, when it was really, really cold out, we had problems with the flap, but otherwise we didn't. And, uh, and uh, I guess, luckily, as, as the whole thing got put back together here after, uh, uh, after <laughs> uh, disassembling and, re- and uh, reassembling the engine, uh, that wire got moved enough to cause the flaps to fail completely, and we were mm-hmm. able to take it down yesterday. And so now I think my flaps are going to work reliably. So, what was the effect of this 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 uh, uh, you know intermittent wire? Was that they sometimes wouldn't go down, or they would sometimes go down without being commanded to? Um, there were well, uh, there were two issues. Um, one is that they would 
come down a little ways and then go up and then come down and then go up and then come down. <laughs> and I was I was in the pattern once and they started doing this and that is the weirdest thing to try and figure out what's going on. Uh, this is all they do it on their own? Yeah, they were going down and up and down oh, and up. <laughs> Without you putting the switch down? No, I had, the switch was in the in the same place. Uh, well, I put the switch down, and and they were just kind of, of pulsing up and down, and that was pretty wild. Uh, but yeah. It, uh, <laughs> okay. But you could put them all the way up and and make a landing with the flaps up, and that was cool. And but you know there was this it, this whole thing was intermittent. So then the next time I flew the airplane, they were just fine. Uh, and then uh, we had another incident, I think, uh, in the deep, dark, colds of winter where they wouldn't come down at all. And we just, uh, I was with, uh, uh, actually with my partner in the airplane at the time, and he's a CFI, so we took the opportunity to practice no-flap landings. Uh-huh. And, uh, but then, of course, then the next time we flew the airplane, they worked just fine. So I take it you were able to get at this wire inside the wing to replace it or repair it? or? Oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, as we were going through this whole troubleshooting procedure, uh, the A&P and, 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 uh, and I, it was kind of like, uh, oh, no, we aren't going to have to replace the limit switches or the flat motor or something like that, which are uh, notoriously difficult to get at in a Skyhawk. Although they're notoriously reliable, he can't remember in 26 years having to replace more than one or two limit switches. So, hmm. mm-hmm. uh, so just a broken wire, but man, they're hard to find sometimes. Yeah, well, you you know how debugging works. That's oh, yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. Randy, what year model is your Skyhawk? It's a 1982. It's a P oh, wow. model, uh, but it uh, which is new for yeah. old Skyhawks. Uh, but it is, uh, it was very much a ramp favorite when it was a trainer, and so it's got a lot of hours on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, good luck to you. Uh, we're, yeah, very we're, good luck, and, and keep us posted on uh, when you finally get that bird back in the air. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to compare notes with James and uh, see <laughs> how our aviation yeah. maintenance totals compare here. Remind me not we never get an annual down in Minnesota. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, now that's just that's just mean. That's mean. That's mean. That's I, know, just mean. I know. Randy, are you familiar with those folks that that James is using? Uh, uh, yes, I've got I've got a good friend with a Mooney, and um, I have uh, dropped him off there before as he's had various and sundry things done with his Mooney. Uh, actually, picked him up. I think is is what we did the last time. He uh, we both flew over there together and and uh, flew back. Good uh, friend I, with a Mooney. Isn't that like a uh, contradiction in terms? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll shut. Up. I'll shut up now. I'll shut up now. Uh, That'll be the day. Let's take a vote. What's the best kind of airplane? Oh, never mind. That's the one you got. The one you got. The one you got is absolutely the best. There you go. There you go. Let's see. Moving on here. Uh, what, one of the news stories uh, this this uh, past week or recently uh, was that, and I don't have the story in front of me. All I have in my notes is it says Garmin shortage. So is it? It's Columbia, right? Columbia and Cessna have both been affected by... uh, A handful of aircraft manufacturers have had to stop production because they cannot get this Garmin avionics to complete the the, uh, manufacture. What's going on? Not exactly right. Okay, tell me me what actually is going on. Attitude heading um, reference hardware. 
that Garmin is putting in their G1000 products uh, has had some quality control issues, for lack of a better term, over the last. Well, uh, what I'm told is the the some product beginning um, leaving the Garmin factory beginning in May uh, has had some problems and is not uh, uh, compliant. Um, they have uh, had to stop production um, at at Columbia and at Cessna apparently also. Uh, at Beach, my understanding is that um, uh, the the few airplanes that have gone out the door with the G1000 package are already in the field. The owners have been uh, uh, apprised of the situation, and and you know that that situation is under control. Uh, Columbia's had to lay off people uh, because they are deathly afraid of of uh, uh, encountering another episode like they did last year when they had X number of airplanes sitting on the ramp uh, waiting for delivery, um, and a hailstorm comes through and damages all of them. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So that that really put a kind of kind of put a damper on things. But um, uh, this, it, it did that, give them an opportunity to find out that speed temples, like on golf balls, <laughs> don't work as well on airplanes. That's right. That's right. Uh, something I have a little bit of history yeah, with. Myself. Really, yeah, really. Yes, you do. But uh, um, the Ahars, uh, it's, it's, it's not a Garmin-manufactured product, to my recollection. It's something that they sourced from a third party. And whoever that third party is, and, and uh, I don't know if that information's out there. I, I don't know what who it is. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, closely held or, or whatever. But whoever they source their AHARs from uh, has had some problems. And uh, the punchline is those aircraft are apparently VFR only uh, and or going partial panel until uh, those AHARs components can be replaced. Um, I saw I saw some uh, verbiage uh yesterday and again today to the effect that the uh, airplanes in the field are completely capable of their usual IFR work and that the uh, pilot should just be prepared to refer to the standby instruments mm-hmm. in the event of the uh, uh, AHAR's failure failure, because the, uh, the failure essentially uh, gives you the uh, G1000 equivalent of the blue screen of death and Microsoft right. Windows, right, and uh, everything stops working. Uh, right. But the standby instruments, the, the three that are there, uh, are independent of that. So uh, supposedly the airplanes are still good to go under their normal circumstances with uh, the proviso that you should be uh, adept at using the standby instruments and and be prepared for the possibility of this happening. Mm-hmm. But from what I gathered, these hadn't been failing in the field. These had been failing in the factory uh, really? when they were being installed in, during uh, production flight tests. They weren't getting out to customers. Uh, uh, so there's uh, some sense that the airplanes that have been delivered already, uh, if they haven't suffered a failure, they're not as likely to because these units were all failing uh, in the installation process or in the uh, quality check process. Uh, at the airplane factories themselves. Mm-hmm. Do we think that other Garmin products that people might have in their hands or in their panels are, are at risk, or is this this isolated thing? Well, it would have uh, to be something, uh, you know, in the way of a glass panel like uh, the G1000 is that has an AHARS component to it. Mm-hmm. A Garmin 530, for example, does not have an AHARS. Right. Uh, but there uh, is the G900 the, the, and the G600. Yeah, the G900. 
and the 600 would would might per, might perhaps be affected um but they may be sourcing the Yehars for those from a different mm-hmm. uh, uh, manufacturer because there is a little bit of uh, uh, cost differential between those and, and the uh, G1000. So, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. It wouldn't be safe to automatically assume that what goes into the uh, 1000 is the same unit that goes into the other two. We haven't had an off-field landing of the week in a few weeks, and uh, so I went out digging this afternoon and I came you went up out with... and did an off-field landing yeah that's right I figured <laughs> that's right there's no jack age like our jack if you don't if you don't like the news that's, you're seeing go out and make some of your crazy. own right yeah <laughs> in Hawaii apparently a uh, a 172 uh was flying a lot and you know I, I, one thing I thought that was notable of this is there there are an awful lot of places in Hawaii to make an off-field landing because there are an awful lot of places in Hawaii um and this uh this let's see this is from a store from the uh, the KPUA uh, AM670 website. Uh, it's, it's actually an AP story. Um, a single engine plane carrying three people made a forced landing yesterday on a hillside in Lanai. Is Lanai one of the islands, or is that a town in... The story's datelined Honolulu, which is on... Uh, is on uh, oh- Almost Oahu. everything that comes out of AP is going to say right. Honolulu when it comes yeah. from Hawaii. FAA Administration spokesman Ian Greger from from Los Angeles, which, by the way, so there's a there's a flight service station joke there someplace, if you think about yeah. that. Right. Uh, that, the, that, the, that the flight service station that serves Hawaii is actually located in Los Angeles. I know it's not a flight service. I, you, I'm just reaching for a joke here. Greger said the pilot of the Cessna 172 reported low engine power while en route from Honolulu to Lanai. He said the plane landed about four miles northwest of Lanai Airport. Uh, the aircraft belongs to George's Aviation Service of Honolulu. Company owner George Hanzawa said the pilot told him the plane is undamaged. Now, here's really my favorite part of the story, okay? So congratulations to the pilot who yeah, set, his, set his airplane down and walked away, and nobody was hurt, and maybe even the airplane wasn't hurt. But here's the thing, all right? He, after landing the airplane, in order to kind of let people know where he was, he lit a signal flare and, and set off a brush fire that burned 30 to 40 acres of grassland, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm hoping the airplane didn't burn in this whole thing. Uh, right, I was know? just going to say, but he didn't burn the airplane. Yeah, well, well, you know, that, that, that's really good. That's right. It's good planning. It's, uh, yeah. you know. It's interesting. I, I came across an accident report um, just this last week. Um, I think it was a, um, a Navajo or, or maybe a Twin Comanche or something like that uh, over Florida. Uh, just at, freshly out of annual uh, pilot is positioning to, to pick up some passengers for a 135 flight. And he's droning along, minding his own business. And uh, he all of a sudden, kerwham, he looks up, and there's this huge uh, gash, cracked windshield. He looks to the right, and part of the cowling of the right engine is missing. And there's smoke and oil and, and all kinds of mayhem occurring. So he secures the right engine, uh, discovers that perhaps um, uh, he needs to set this thing down, uh, that this, this twin is not going to make it to a nearby runway. Uh, for some reason, the cowling damage and all that is, has created so much drag that uh, uh, he's got to put it down. Puts it down in a field. Apparently, undamaged airplane uh, gets out, uh, walks away, whips out a cell phone or something like that. And the field that he landed in has some high grass. Yeah. And the heat or the damage to the engine or something like that catches the grass on fire and incinerates an otherwise perfectly good airplane. 
Well, that's just bad luck. It's just bad luck. It's <laughs> just yeah. bad luck. Yeah. Jiminy Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations but, to the pilot in, in Hawaii. Uh, very who, uh, much. Yeah. Who set down his 172. That's the uh, off-field landing of the week here. And uh, 72s. You know, watch those flares. Yeah. What about it's 172s, what? Randy? You gotta like them. There you go. <laughs> that's right. There that's you right. go. I flew a 172 around Hawaii once, around Maui, actually. Uh-huh. A lot of fun. Wowie. So, let's see now. Another story this week was uh, uh, the FAA is, uh, is I, I guess they're doing this constantly, but there was a story about uh, some notice to, it wasn't actually a no- notum, but it was uh, information they were putting out uh, urging people to be even more careful about runway incursions. Um, and... Uh, you know, we could talk about the story. What I wanted to kind of talk about, and I, I don't know, Jeb, it's sort of your beat, but if you know anything about this particular FAA notification, it's got a funny name. At least it was funny to me. Let me what is it? Info? Yeah, in, oh, in, info. An info. Yeah, that's, I think that is something new, uh, some new construct of theirs. Uh, I've seen that before on, on some other topics. Um, this one... Uh, the subject is taxi clearances. Know the rules. Understand your clearance. It's dated. Um, it's um, yeah, August eight uh, of 07, Obviously, uh, two page uh, info bulletin, uh, page and a half. Um, just a reminder uh, to those of us using uh, uh, towered airports and perhaps even non-towered airports that. Uh, um, you don't want to be on the same runway with an airplane that's trying to take off or land. The uh, the safety bulletin itself stresses uh, uh, FAA regulations on taxi clearances. Um, you know, discusses again what a what a uh, taxi clearance is, what it is not. Perhaps more importantly, um, runway incursions are certainly a problem, and there have been some some notable. Examples recently, um, mainly involving air carrier aircraft, some of them involving a mix of air carrier and GA. Um, uh, this is a problem that's mainly prevalent and present at the larger uh, hub airports as opposed to the, the smaller ones, or at least at the smaller ones, they're not reported as often. Uh, but the FAA wants you to know, and uh, <laughs> Whatever the FAA wants, we're happy to give them. That's right. I mean, it's tempting to think that you know. I mean, I you know, I'm I'm careful. I keep my head up, and I'm sure. I'm not going to have any problem with runway incursions. But but clearly, it happens often enough that you know. I mean, it's well. I mean, are here, there are there my common analogy? Mis- yeah, go ahead. My analogy is you know, you're driving down the street, you 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 your own neighborhood, or maybe a neighborhood over. And you, you, you know where you're going, you get distracted for some reason, and you make a wrong turn. Yeah. It's, it's the same, basically the same thing, unquote, unquote. Uh, the consequences, however, are drastically different in the aviation environment versus, versus your own personal automobile. Uh, and and the, the punchline in all this is pilots have to be on their toes anytime that prop is turning, anytime the, the turbine is spinning. Uh, uh, was where they're going, when, how they're going to get there, and what they're supposed to do when they cross X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's just part of the deal. It's just part of, of uh, the responsibility of being in control of an aircraft. So, you know, the, the, go ahead, Randy. The, the safety aspect of the thing uh, is, is certainly uh, you know, key, but um, I used to fly out of Crystal Airport in the northwest section of uh, Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
It's a, a very small, very old airport. Um, to, uh, it has an FAA tower. Uh, it has had one for years and years and years and years and years. Um, and it has, I guess the unique thing about it is is that it uh, it has four runways, and there's, it's actually two set up as two parallels, 90 degrees to each other. And so there's a lot going on there, and... Mm-hmm. At one point in time, that little tiny airport was in the top ten for runway incursions in the in in all of the really? U.S. Really, really. And, and so, do we know why? Well, uh, well, I I don't know why, and that kind of comes to this point um, uh, of who's reporting what and when, and what's the criteria that that warrants reporting a runway incursion. And there was actually some concern there that maybe what they were interpreting as runway incursions was a little bit different than what was mm-hmm. being interpreted at other airports. So the reporting thing is 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 certainly a challenge cuz I you know in all of the time that I operated at that airport, I you know really I I can't honestly say that I ever saw or heard anything on the radio um, that would amount to a, to a problem, uh, but there were a lot. You know, there were runways crossing runways, um, <laughs> four runways across four other runways. So, um, yeah. you know, for a situation to lend itself to an incursion, uh, that that certainly is one. Um, and uh, but I, I, I found that interesting. I, yeah, because uh, over time, I mean, the one thing that that happened is. Um, Boy, they they talked. To, uh, there were lots of programs at the airport about runway incursions, and uh, um, certainly those uh, I'm certain brought brought the issue to uh, to light. But uh, um, all of a sudden, it dropped off the list, and uh, I don't know if they changed the way they were reporting, or if, you know, or, or maybe there was just an operational issue with the way that they were steering things around the airport that was causing problems. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of it. A lot of runway incursions occur at your busier, busiest, busier airports where controllers are, are trying to squeeze um, the, the demand onto the pavement. And this gets back into discussion of, uh, uh, you know, are there too many airliners trying to land on too little pavement? Um, and at airports where, you know, you have parallel runways or you have a lot of runways to cross to get to the airliner ramp or, or, or things like this. Um, my, my home airport here at Manassas, Virginia, has two parallel runways, um, a lot of a uh, fairly good mix of traffic. There's, a, there's student operations, there's, there's uh, the, your basic flib like myself, and then there's uh, some jets and some turboprops. Uh, um, FBI has an operation going out of there. It's it's. I think there's a there's a you know some Stearmans and hangers. I think there's a P fifty one in somebody's hangar. There's there's a wide variety of aircraft. But for the life of me, I don't recall ever hearing about a runway incursion, a, a full blown bona fide runway incursion at that facility. Um, the other point, I guess that this should be made too, is and it kind of gets into something I think Randy might have been touching on, might have been inadvertently touching on. Um, some of this is uh, uh, NATCA driven. I think sometimes they're not going to blow the whistle on themselves, but they are going to blow the whistle on um, some some air crews sometimes and and or 
uh, various rules that the that headquarters sends down, and or um, uh, just bad design or or bad policies at some of these airports with shall we say atypical configurations. Um, you know, the punchline, of course, is at, at most non-towered airports, it's it's not a factor for one, you know, for, for a handful of reasons. One, you don't have the, the traffic levels. Two, there's no one around like an FAA controller to report or to take down uh, the fact that there was a runway incursion. And three, some when they when those do happen, and they do happen, there have there have been collisions on runways involving uh, uh, GA aircraft at non-towered airports, um, but they are very rare. And generally, um, it's it's uh, just one of those kinds of things where. Um, you know, you break one link in that chain, and uh, the accident doesn't occur. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Not not to undercut the the severity of the topic, because you know, taxiing onto the runway at the wrong time could ruin the day for two two pilots. Absolutely. But uh, in reading this document, this info, things jumped out at me. One is the uh, the uh, target audience, which to me is kind of identified by the URL they gave the uh, uh, PDF file talking about this, which is, you know, FAA.gov slash other visit slash aviation underscore industry slash airline underscore operators slash airline underscore safety backslash info. And the other that just jumped out at me is that if this is really so serious, why aren't we pumping this up? Because... It goes on to explain what an info is. An info <laughs> contains valuable information for operators that should help them meet certain administrative, regulatory, or operational requirements with relatively low urgency or impact on safety. Now, I don't know. That seems to like be kind of 180 degrees in the face of uh, why this is important. Uh, right. The low impact, low urgency, and low impact on safety. Right. Uh, does this strike anybody else as a tad bit backwards? Yeah. Um, very good catch. Uh, and I'll have to remember to read the fine print more often. Um, I, I, it, which kind of goes back to, I guess, my initial reaction. Yeah, it does happen. Uh, yeah, there have been a couple of, of, I don't know, the last six months, maybe two or three uh, incursions that, that kind of made the cut or made the news. Uh, and yes, it's a problem. It's it's clearly an issue. It clearly is something that we need to avoid. But is it the greatest threat to aviation safety since the Wright brothers? Not a not a chance. Yeah. Not a chance. But I guess I guess to, to sum it all up, it's 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 a variation on that old rule, which is you just got to remember to always taxi the airplane and uh, yeah. pay attention to what you're doing. Be be aware of where you are. That's right. That's right. We got some email from listeners. A uh, couple things I wanted to, to change I, I, those email addresses. You know, again, we've been you know, we that same moving. that same guy keeps writing. Our our single listener keeps writing us back. That's right. That's right. And he uses different names. And he uh, we you actually know, we got move, some, We don't yeah. leave a forwarding address. They catch up right. with us anyway. It was actually kind of fun over the last couple of days because when we had to postpone the recording session the other morning, I put an entry in the blog just to I don't know let people know that we were late for a reason this time instead of I was just out having fun and uh, and I invited people to kind of comment about you know some other things and we suddenly started to get all these great comments that uh, 
um, from people. Some really good suggestions were made about some things that we can add. For example, one of the things we're going to do starting with this episode, is, and I did this once before, but I didn't keep it up, and I'm going to, I'm going to really try, and, and people should send me email if I forget. Um, I'm going to create a blog entry every week after we post a new episode, specifically for the purpose of making a place where people can leave comments about that particular episode. Uh, so uh, if you have some feedback for us specifically about the episode, uh, uh, you can certainly send us email or an audio comment like you have, but you could also go into the blog and find the entry for that particular episode and, and leave it as a comment and uh, get some discussion going between, uh, between various uh, listeners. One of the pieces of email that we got uh, in the past week, though, was from, uh, from John in Mansfield, Massachusetts. And John writes, he says, my name is John. I'm excited to say that I've just earned my private pilot ticket at the Northampton Airport. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Congratulations. That's right. And that's a great place to have learned. That's one of my, uh, one of my uh, sort of former home airports, Northampton uh, Field up in North, uh, near Hampton Beach. It's a great, great uh, grass strip with all sorts of tail draggers and, and biplanes and, and uh, a great little restaurant and uh, a porch. Another place you got thrown out of. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> As a matter of fact, someday I'll tell you that story, not, during, not while we're hanging out in the virtual hangar, though. But, uh, he says, I earned my private pilot ticket at Northampton Airport. He says, I'm now flying out of Mansfield, Massachusetts, a little closer to home and about a half hour away from Boston. He says, I'm planning on getting my IFR later in life, but right now I'm working on my aeronautical engineering degree. So that's terrific. Um, now that he has uh, now that he's, he has his ticket and is going to be doing more and more flying, he asks us uh, what we might have to tell him about renter's insurance, uh, you know, which is, of course... Get some. Yeah, I have to confess that as a longtime renter, I've always kind of played it fast and loose and not purchased this kind of stuff. How much trouble could I get myself in for not having renter's insurance? How big's your bank account? Well, see, no trouble at all then. <laughs> well, um, here, here's the deal: the, the insurance on the airplane, whether it's hull insurance, which covers uh, damage, physical damage to the airplane. Uh, or liability insurance, which covers, um, how should I put this, what, what someone might sue you for, uh, all of that coverage on the airplane basically insures the FBO. Mm-hmm. doesn't insure the renter pilot. Uh, it insures the owner of the airplane if he's different from the FBO, and it insures the FBO, the operator. Um, if you, for example, if the engine fails, something that's clearly not your fault, but you happen to be the, the poor schmuck sitting in a left seat, and you land in a schoolyard, and um, even if you don't hit anybody, even if everybody gets out and walks away and no one on the ground is damaged, there are damages on the ground. You knock uh, over you, the slide. Yeah. You knocked over the slide. You put a chip in the brickwork uh, on the side of the wall. Um, someone is going to cover. Someone is going to have to pay for that. Someone's going to have to cover that expense. And initially, the school or the court or, or whomever will uh, recover from the company that carries the insurance on the FBO on the operator. But then that insurance company can come recover from you right. or try to. Anyway. And even if they don't succeed in recovering from you, you're going to have legal fees. You're going to have all kinds of, of nasty uh, complications in your in your otherwise mundane life. And... Um, that's where renter's insurance comes in. It, it covers you 
when the insurance company for the FBO comes after you. Now, so what, what sort of coverage levels should one get? Uh, get enough to I, cover the value of the airplane. I'd, uh, I'd find out what the owner has it insured for. Right. Uh, and that's probably going to be dictated, uh, uh, be a dictating point for the renter's uh, policy writer anyway, is what the airplane is insured for now. They're not going to give you a policy that insures it for wildly more than what the owner has it insured for. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and uh, some airports uh, like to see a minimum on liability coverage if, if an airplane's hangered there. So I would at least want to match what the owner has in terms of liability. If they've got a million, uh, that's really a, a, a pretty easy number to get insured these days and not very expensive on the liability side. Um, some It depends on from whom you get your renter's insurance. Uh, I carried a policy many, many, many years ago. Uh, I wasn't. And I, today, I'm not sure that I had any option for minimum limits or additional limits or something like that. I think it was a, a fixed rate and take it or leave it. Uh, but this was kind of early uh, in the scheme of things with relative to renter's insurance for, for uh, uh, airplane renters. Uh, nowadays, um, there may well be limits. And... Uh, <sighs> The, the the value of the airplane is certainly one way to gauge uh, where you should uh, set those limits. Um, the other way to gauge it is how much are you willing to lose, mm-hmm. or yeah. or, or uh, if if you put it down in a schoolyard and, and God forbid you you do you know injure, let's say uh, a couple of children, um, their family is going to come after you, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, God forbid they be injured for life or disfigured or something like that. Uh, how much is that worth to a jury? I would sub- suggest to you that it's probably worth north of a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So how much uh, is it going to cost? I think I paid $50 a year or something like that. It wasn't hideously expensive. Uh, but again, this was quote-unquote a while back. Yeah. Um, I, I don't recall. Um, these days, I'm paying... Uh, roughly twenty five hundred a year to insure my airplane at a million smooth uh, with and a fairly substantial hull value, and I don't consider that exorbitant at all. I pay almost that to insure three motor vehicles. Mm-hmm. Well, the, uh, the 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 availability of rentals renters insurance is generally pretty good. Uh, you can start by calling a broker who will shop mm-hmm. around for you. Uh, if you belong to one of the major pilot groups. Uh, EAA or uh, AOPA. Uh, I know AOPA does, uh, their insurance program does, and I believe EAA does as well, offer a rental policy uh, for their members who are pilots and want to fly rental airplanes. Uh, And ask around the airport. Uh, Find out who the local pilots are doing business with and whether they're good or bad to do business with. Uh, you might find that uh, you know one agency is a little bit higher than another, uh, but once you get locked into a broker, unless you call a Vimco, which doesn't sell through brokers, right. uh, then uh, you shouldn't be shopping it around anymore to yeah. other brokers because they're going to call everybody that they have to to get you insured, and it'll be the same list of suspects that a second broker will call. So right. 
they're, they're going to try to do the best they can for you because the only way they make money is if they get you to sign for one of those policies. Yeah. Randy, yeah, this, what, this, hang on. Randy were you saying to... something a moment, a moment ago, Randy? Well, I, just a comment that, it, uh, as I recall, it's relatively inexpensive. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Jeb, I'm I, sorry. Uh, the, the very interesting question, though, and it's one that kind of deserves a little uh, little um, um, peeling of the layers. Uh, we might see if we can get, you know, maybe an industry insurance professional to come on board and, and talk to us a little bit more about this because uh, I think it's clearly something our listeners have an interest in, and uh, it's clearly something that comes up from time to time. It, the, the answers change, I think, from time to time also, and, and, that's and maybe, maybe that's a, a good argument in favor of uh, getting a professional on and, and talking some more about this. Sounds like a good idea. Well, congratulations to John from Mansfield, Massachusetts for getting his private ticket. Yay. And uh, as far as renters concerns, as far as renters insurance is concerned, you probably, you, <laughs> you probably ought to do like they say, not as I do. Huh? And uh, let's see now, one other piece of email I wanted to, I don't know if this is going to be a long conversation or a short one. I'm not sure what I think. Brian from Gold Ribbon River, California. Uh, writes to us. Uh, he's, uh, first of all, he, t- he writes, uh, I fly cargo 767s for DHL at work, and I have a Cozy that I uh, built, which I fly for fun. He spells it CO-Z. Is that the uh, airplane I think of as a COZY? It's a canard, kind of sle- yeah. sleek-looking, yeah. sporty-looking canard, right? It's uh, only Cozy I know of. Yeah. Because the Cozy is too small for uh, to be a family plane, when my wife and two, two children want to take a flying vacation, I rent the right aircraft from a local flying club and go. He then goes into, and I'm not going to read all the, his, his discussion, um, but uh, he, he asks whether, adjusted for inflation, flying might actually be more expensive today or, or, or less expensive. He asks what the relative real expense uh, might be as compared to many years ago, 40, 50 years ago. Um, he also asks whether the average person might have more disposable income now, and, and those factors might, you know, kind of mean that maybe maybe flying isn't as expensive as it used to be. You know, what's the real cost of flying now versus a bunch of years ago? All um, you got. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. How much do you have? That's right. Um, and then he goes into the part that I, I have a little bit of a problem with, um, and, and which is that and see if I can summarize this. He wonders if the if the real problem behind diminishing the, the diminishing pilot population might actually be cultural. He talks a bit about the fact that that many many years ago, when when the uh, uh, when women played a more subordinate role in the family and the men kind of made the decisions and if they wanted to fly airplanes they went out and flew airplanes and now that men and women are are you know uh, you know run their their lives more equally um do they both get to participate in the decision making process and as a result and this is the part i start to have trouble with he suggests that women want to spend the disposable income on you know like beautifying the home and you know family vacations as opposed to the guys who want to go flying and I'm not totally comfortable with that notion. Yeah, see, I, I can't get behind the beautifying the home. I mean, you know, you, you spend thousands and thousands of dollars for this brand new spanking clean kitchen, and you come home and you, where, where are you going to put your carburetor? That's right. You know, That's right. Where are you going to put this airplane part that you, you just yanked off of the airplane? That's and you right. Clean up for the annual. And it's and, not. You know, it's, and it's not a man versus woman thing either. All right, years ago I ha- I was roommates with a guy who was actually a pilot as well. All right, and I wanted to start building an RV on the dining room table, and he wouldn't let me. 
I mean, man, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a gender-based thing. It's not I, a gender-based thing. I don't know. But here, here's my answer to, and it, I, I can't get into the question of. We'll have to t- kind of take a homework assignment here on the cost of living uh, and the cost of flying uh, over time. Is it higher or lower? The same as it was, say, in the in the 1960s. Uh, the quick answer is we don't know, mm-hmm. and it's another very good question that we are going to have to research. I think and and try to respond to um, uh, in a subsequent episode. But my real answer to the question of why don't more people fly has two words to it. And the words are air conditioning. Okay. (laughs) Would you like to elaborate on that? If more airplanes were air conditioned and were as comfortable and as quiet as the Lexus that the wife just climbed out of before she got into the airplane... I think we would have more airplanes and more pilots See, in the world. See, uh, there you go. You're straying to this whole area that I'm not comfortable with. I just well, I, I'm not, that's not a gender thing. It's not a it's not a sexist thing. It's it's a comfort level thing. It's a it's a it's a status thing to some extent. Sure. It's it's uh, and you think um, women are more sensitized to this no, kind of thing I, than I, men I, are? No, I should I shouldn't have said it. I shouldn't have pl- said it the way I said it. Um, but the guy, yeah, or right? The because Amy's going to be on the phone any yeah, second a- a- now. Amy's going to be on the phone any second. The guy or the gal who drives up in the middle of July to their airplane and gets out of this nice, plush, quiet, well-appointed, you know, Lexus or Mercedes or BMW or pick a luxury car, gets out of the air conditioning, walks over to his airplane, gets in it, turns the key. And the thing's not air conditioned. It's not as comfortable. And he's paying, you know, half a million dollars for this this piece of equipment. He's got to kind of scratch his head and say, "Wait a second, you know, something's a little bit askew here. This is not as comfortable. This is more work. I'm paying a lot more money for this. Um, but why you're going a lot faster? Going a lot faster, and it's a lot more fun. And it's you know the status and and the the the, the ability to talk to, to to one another about it like we're doing here, but um, not all, not everybody sees it that way. My and, take and, is a little bit cultural, but yeah. not in the same sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's jump back uh, seventy years with uh, Europe about oh, to erupt. Only you in, can do that, Dave. Yeah, I know. Well, none of us can do it. <laughs> With Europe about to erupt into a world war, yeah. uh, and Franklin Roosevelt over here, seeing, uh, you know, down the road, starts to build an air force, starts to build a cadre of pilots to fly them through something called the Civilian Pilot Training Corps. Uh, that provided us with the core of our combat-ready pilots when we finally entered the war in 1941, trained tens of thousands of civilians in that program, and then millions more when the, between just before the war breaking out and the end of the war that got trained. And even though only a small percentage of those guys who came back from the war, and women who came back from the war uh, where they'd been pilots and pilot navigators and such, stayed in aviation they provided the seed corn if you will for a big boom in 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 the pilot population that has started to finally not keep pace because those people are dying out okay i I see what you're saying and it makes some sense but so what you're saying is the fact that aviation used to be more popular quote i mean that's oversimplifying it was artificial uh it was inspired by circumstances that have not been replicated. 
So we need to convince President Bush to create. No, let's not go down there. No, 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 no. Stop right. Now, what we need is we we got the, the industry gave itself a boost in the seventies with something called the Learn to Fly program and the Learn to Fly Girls, who went out around the United States, sponsored by Gamma and the Gamma companies. That's the General Aviation Manufacturers Association. Went around the country doing television spots. This lovely young lady uh, flying. Gamma member airplanes, and they alternated the airplanes through different parts of the country. But she'd, you know, do some advance work. She'd show up in a town to do a seminar. She'd do something on TV with the local human interest lady reporter. Generally, they'd go up in the airplane, see even women can fly. Guys, you'd go, wow, you know, I could do this. And airplanes were coming out the doors by the thousands uh-huh. in those years. But so there's all kinds of these learn to fly programs going on right now. Are you saying this is going to turn the tide? I'm saying that none of them have been as serious or as effective as that one in the 70s when they put so much uh, so much in a way of money and personality into the program. Uh-huh. Uh, we've had the uh, be a pilot program which did a a, a, a fair job of attracting uh, you know raising student starts uh, and it costs you know, a couple of million bucks a year uh, or better to put those ads on Discovery Wings and the Discovery Channel and the Military Channel and the Weather Channel. Uh, but it never had the same, I think, impact and drama as an attractive young person flying around the country in a brand new airplane, showing it off to people in person, people that had been, you know, known to have the resources to do this. And got out there and stirred the pot in a one-on-one kind of way. Mm-hmm. And you see the manufacturers do this to a certain degree when they campaign an airplane, a new airplane around the country. But but bulk of the people that they're showing those airplanes to are already part of the tribe. Yeah. They're already among the converted. Yeah. Two, two and we've comments. done an extraordinary job of preaching to the converted and trying to tantalize mm-hmm. the non-converted. And uh, there's a, just beaucoup more competition for these dollars and this time than, than, than there was 30 and 40 years ago. And, and of course, the, on the light, the light end of the, the general aviation market, the aircraft are generally not air-conditioned. But moving right along. Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> right. But sure they are, man. You turn the fan on you turn and the fan. you get fresh air. Yeah, you, you got, that, I got that little window there right, right by you my left th- hand, and you just kind of open that little thing, and then a lot of wind blows in, right? Two, two things, and I'm not disputing Dave. Um, um, I think he, I think. I think that's uh, one more facet of the overall equation. Um, two things, though. Thinking back to the 70s um, and what I would call the speculative uh, purchase and acquisition of airplanes. Oh, yeah. The investment uh, tax credit was yeah. just we had, we had know, hyper- artificially boosting everything. We had hyperinflation. We had um, in the investment tax credit. We had accelerated depreciation. We had all of these these factors coming together. And any uh, um, anybody could buy an airplane for for not a I mean a relatively large sum of money then as now, but not uh, um, not real money as you might say not you know millions of dollars or seven figures or anything like that, and um, lease it back, figure out a way to pr- make it productive in a business fashion, and 
the whole thing was deductible. There, the, some of the tax laws were not as strict as they are now. Some of the tax laws existing then do not exist at all now. Right. And uh, there was a lot of speculative, shall we say, purchases and, and acquisitions and, of airplanes. And the, and the pilot population grew. Pilot Along population. Along with that fleet. That's right. Because it was, it was so much easier to get into an airplane. It was mm-hmm. so much lower, less expensive to get a pilot's license as a relative part of the cost. Uh, one, you know, one of the godsends to the dealers in those days was they were able to sell former student pilots very often the airplane that they trained in. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. What, you know, one of the other things, though, here. 50 or 100, uh, Four or five hundred hours in a, in training environment, and the guy gets his ticket and says, "You know, I want that airplane." Well, well, sell him the airplane, and Cessna will send us another one in a That's few right. weeks. Yeah. That's exactly right. One of the other things, though, on, on Dave's point relative to um, a, a more um, defined and, and better. Uh, managed, uh, more attractive uh, salespeople, perhaps, uh, effort to to market general aviation to the general public. Um, some of that is going on today. Yeah. Uh, you see, uh, I pick up a, a motorcycle magazine nowadays, and I see an ad from Cessna in it. Um, you see um, similar ads um, uh, in um, some of the, uh, the some some other magazines that are simply not associated with uh, uh, with aviation, but you also see organizations like NBAA uh, going out. In in recent years, they've gone to population centers. Um, they've uh, brought in, and, and, and I presume with, with the uh, help and, and support of manufacturers, they've brought in a variety of different aircraft. They've had a mini uh, air show, basically, uh, at a, a, a smaller airport, a, a general aviation airport. They'll bring in a couple of citations. They'll bring in a Cirrus or two, uh, maybe a Bonanza, uh, maybe a King Air, something like that. Uh, and they will invite a lot of civic leaders. They will invite a lot of small and, and medium-sized business people who don't have any aviation background or, or have minimal aviation exposure uh, and have a, a cocktail party, have a, a, a presentation, something like this. And it's, it's, from what I've been able to discern, it's been a fairly uh, productive, fairly successful effort. I presume it's still ongoing. Um, that achieves a couple of things too. Uh, obviously, they're trying to sell hardware. They're trying to sell uh, airplanes for their for their members and and for the manufacturers. But also, they're they're trying to um, attract opinion leaders in those communities to the concept that these are tools. These are not playthings. These are not playboy toys. These right. are tools to help grow that community. And it, it, the, the airport itself needs needs the local support. The people who operate airplanes at that airport need local support. And uh, it, it's something that if, it, if it's not continuing, it certainly should be continuing because it's done correctly. Uh, it it, it uh, would be a very good thing. Randy, you're being awful quiet here. You're probably too smart to dive into this whole thing. Randy, is he still Yo, there? Randy. Randy. He seems to still be there. I see him on my little list. I see him there, too. Wait a minute, we just lost him. Hang on. Uh-oh. Hang on. Let's see if we can find Randy here. What happened, Randy? <laughs> I hit the wrong button. Oh, we... 
I think it was an unconscious desire to not have to contribute to that little conversation there. Eject, eject, eject. That's right. So I don't know where we lost you here, but uh, you have any two cents you want to contribute to the whole subject of uh, the whole subject? Well, uh, you know, I, I, you know, one thing that that just occurs to me is is that you know, there's a, a whether or not it's it's the average American wanting to fly or not wanting to fly, um, there's going to be a distinct need for pilots as this whole so true, very true. And I'm real curious as to where they're going to come from. Well, it's interesting. That's a very good point. And we have a little blurb here, I thought. Um, Northwest, yeah, Randy added this earlier. Northwest adding smaller airplanes but running out of pilots. And I'm going to click that link and see where it takes me here. Um, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're bringing on the, uh, the Embraer 110s, is it? Yeah, uh, what, the 35s, 145s, 70, 70-some-seat Embraers uh, to That'd replace the their smallest DC-9s. And um, they're bringing them on in a new regional carrier. Um, but, uh, but regardless, there will be net... When it nets out, there will be more airplanes than they were flying in the past. There will be more yep. smaller airplanes. And being in the Twin Cities here, there was some national news of this, but both at the end of June and at the end of July, there were distinct, uh, <laughs> there were some real issues with Northwest Airlines uh, because their pilots all ran out of time. Uh, at some point, they made a management decision to try and, and increase the number of flights on the airline uh, without increasing the number of pilots. Oh, and so yeah. they all timed out on their whatever monthly or whatever uh, number of hours Back, they could fly. And yeah, even after they came to an, uh, even, this is after a union agreement to increase the number of, of monthly hours that that a uh, pilot would fly. And so, uh, you know, there was a lot of back and forth between the airplane, airline and the, and the pilots, you know, the airline saying, well, the pilots are calling in sick, and the, and the, and the pilots saying, well, gosh, you know, you really got to hire some more of us. And, uh, uh, and in the end, the airline, I think, admitted as much as they were going to that they just didn't have enough pilots. <laughs> and... Uh, and so, you know, well, okay, we'll, rec- we'll recall everybody that's on furlough. Well, that's, that was like three or 400. And they said, well, okay, now we've got to hire three or 400 more than that. Now they're bringing on this uh, Compass Airlines to, to pick up their, uh, their short, um, smaller airplane flights. Uh, and that's going to be 360 pilots that they're going to be required for that. Uh, Masaba Airlines, another Northwest Theater is adding 50 airplanes or something like that. I, I, you know, some huge number of these small regional jets, and there have to be people that, that are going to fly them. Are there pilots out there? Uh, I, I don't. You know, uh, um, the large flight schools have, uh, at least around here, pretty much dried up and gone away. Yeah, you know, those yeah. have to be kind of the feeder ground for the regional carriers. And so, well, there's, there's a there's an awfully deep industry in puppy mills. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, and uh, I don't mean that to sound as disparaging as I, as I made it sound. But, uh, you know, I saw an ad recently, and now I'm blanking on which carrier it was for. 
but talked about how you could be flying right seat on our airline with just 250 hours. And, you know, first off, the idea that I'm, I'm paying for a ticket to be flown right seat by a guy with 251 hours uh, a little bit distressing <laughs> to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when my shoes you know, have more time than the pilot. That's, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've got socks with more time than, in the air than that. But uh, uh, the uh, the puppy mills that uh, that specialize in you coming to their school, paying them to teach you, and then paying the airline to qualify you. Uh, is is you know that that's a that's a cut pretty much runneth uh, over right now. Yeah, but it, well, uh, but that's but a the, different. Go ahead. That's Randy. not that's not well, keeping that, with the expansion uh, because uh, the uh, the majors and 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 this is part of their the failure of their argument about uh, fees. Not not to start on that dead horse, but uh, they've reduced available seats across the fleet, but increase the number of aircraft flying. And, and they've done that by grounding larger airplanes and putting in more smaller airplanes. So uh, that lets them go to more destinations more flexibly, serve smaller markets than they could with the larger airplanes. All good in the airline business. But that's meant an increase in traffic at a lot of these hub airports that were already OD'd on the hub and spoke on on the push cycles that were there before they had to absorb flights from more airplanes. Yeah, Randy, what uh, were you saying? Well, you know, I mean, even even if they do uh, manage to have programs that can graduate enough people to to fill the pipeline, uh, the costs that you incur to even get up to that two hundred and fifty hour mark are dramatic. Yeah. And they're talking about, you know, these entry-level positions that don't pay a tremendous amount of money. And so the oh, economics yeah. aren't yeah. Two uh, words. not be there either uh, for even somebody that, that has a deep passion about this. Yeah, two, two words. Two words, Randy. Air, air conditioning. No, okay. <laughs> Student loans. <laughs> Student loans. All right, but don't well, you think that, uh, don't you think, though, that the, the, the problem of the airlines not having enough pilots is a very different problem than the problem of there not being enough GA starts, people flying for business or recreation? Well, they're you, kind of rolled up together to a certain extent. You do. Go ahead, Randy. You, do you think they do go together? I, I, I absolutely think they do. I, I, you know, certainly um, folks that have the ultimate airline ambition, um, a good number of them, uh, the military being the exception, and I can't remember how many years ago it was that uh, the airlines, it was finally announced that the airlines, less than 50% of new airline pilots were coming from the military. That was, that was quite some time ago. Yeah, the um, try the sixties. Yeah, and the, the 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 military isn't giving anybody up any longer, uh, just because of the cost involved. And uh, um, and so, you know, how does it start? I mean, it starts with a GA um, training start, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, you you have to get that private ticket, or as some of the schools are doing now, a, a, a sport pilot ticket or a recreational ticket, then a private ticket, and then and then your instrument rating, and 
and uh, inevitably you you move up to being an instructor and building right. Up. It certainly is a food chain in some regards, but my point is that, that there wouldn't be more GA pilot starts just because the airlines were willing to hire more people. No. There, there's a more fundamental reason why people aren't learning how to fly for for you know for to get a private ticket, and I, well, and I, I, I don't know I, what that is. I think there's yeah. two things we're kind of talking past each other here. One. Uh, we're talking about an airline pilot shortage. Two, we're talking about a, a low number of student stars in the in the um, training industry. And you know, one question, of course, is: Does that low number of student starts translate into a, a reduced number of available airline pilots? I think it does to an extent, yeah. but no one's, in my mind anyway, been able to quantify the extent. Well, there's more competition um, for these guys with airline qualifications. Look at how yeah. the business aviation fleet is expanding. A, a and, lot of competition. Uh, uh, yeah, and there's a lot of guys, uh, relatively speaking, who are figuring out, you know, after they after they get their student loans paid for and they fly their time for the regionals and uh, they see the dramatically wonderful treatment that the employees <laughs> got during the bankruptcy, having their labor contracts abrogated and their pensions screwed over, and say, wow, I don't I want to work for these people. Yeah, I want to do more of this. Well, and yeah. that, that kind of brings me to my next real point is... They go to work for, the, you know, for, for, for Ford or GM or, or NetJets or someplace. You know, what the hell's going on at Northwest Management when they their pilots are timing out at the end of the month and they can't staff air they can't put any pilots in airplanes? What are they smoking out there and who's lost their job already? Because that's oh, no. just a fundamental uh, piece of the pie, a piece of the puzzle of running an airline. And yeah, it if, used to if, be kind of a standard even, formula, right? Yeah, if they can't even X manage... number of crews for Y yeah, number of airplanes. If they can't manage their own crews and, and keep their airplanes in the air, then somebody's head ought to roll. I mean, certainly, you know, if it had been me, I'd, my ass had been fired. So, and I, deservedly you know, so. <laughs> and deservedly uh, so. Airline management, I think... Uh, is, is an oxymoron also. a little different uh, yeah. uh, rule book these days. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but I, it seems like they do. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, well, listen, guys, we're reached. We've 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 definitely reached the end of our allotted time here. Above um, and beyond the call of duty. That's right. Especially it's, since we. St- it's, and it it's, is duty. It's approaching midnight. Well, it's not. It's eleven twenty, but still, it's. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, uh, trust me, I will not see midnight tonight. This. Yeah. Right. This is an interesting experiment, but I think I think uh, it's uh, just an experiment. Any shout-outs before we finish off here? Um, well, yes. Go ahead, Jeff. Um, Ken Pippard and Mike Davis, uh, two good Jim friends. Davis. Uh, Jim Davis, um, good friends of ours, especially good friends of of uh, Dave's, are uh, having their annual hangar party. Ah, we talked about this last year. Yeah, okay. They, they weekend. Now I'm not going to say where it is. Oh, that's yeah. Okay, it's a scavenger hunt, right? It's invitation only. But just to shout out uh, those of you who might be listening who know uh, Jim and Ken, uh, this is always a great event. Um, it's always a lot of fun. Uh, they have a, some special uh, um, events this this year. I think there will be a B-17 in attendance giving rides. I won't say who's B-17 because, once again, that would kind of give away the location. But uh, just a little shout-out to them, and uh, 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 hats off to them for keeping this thing going. And uh, uh, yeah, You I haven't said there, the key word here. 
This is their 20th. Oh, wow. That's right. That's right. This is this their is 20th. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's terrific. Any other shout-outs? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, two quick ones, both for the weekend of 24, 25, 26. Minden in, uh, in uh, Nevada? Nebraska. Minden, Nebraska. An Antique Aircraft Association fly-in. Registration starts on Friday the 24th. Uh, they're going to have meals that evening for the uh, registered participants, uh, uh, flying and, and, and food on the field, Saturday aircraft judging, a social hour, a banquet. Uh, sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun, and uh, the VAA fly or Antique Aircraft Association fly-in stuff, uh, always great fun to see the old birds. Uh, the second one's the same weekend, and that's the uh, Wichita Flight Fest. Uh, at, at our hometown, uh, Jabara Airport. Jabara is Alpha Alpha Oscar. Uh, they're having uh, uh, quite a do there that weekend. And uh, Minden, Nebraska, Oscar Victor III. Uh, worth dropping in either one of them. Yep. Uh, let me drop one in here. Let's see. We've got uh, uh, a listener, Les, from the U.K. Uh, wrote us to uh, tell us that uh, he said, last year, a couple of pals and myself raised over $60,000 for cancer-related charities Ooh, wow. by flying ultralights. Uh, they, uh, their, their ultralight fundraising program is uh, called Flights for Life. Uh, they have a website, www.flightsforlife.co.uk, and uh, they're starting to prepare for next year's event. They said, we're looking for sponsors for the event, so uh, if you could mention us on your podcast, it would be great. If you are involved in the ultralight industry or the ultralight community in either the UK or I would imagine in Europe in general, and you want to help out with what sounds like a, a great cause, uh, check out the website flightsforlife.co.uk. What all else? my ultralight flying, all I ever raised was eyebrows and ire. So, you know, <laughs> raising money. <laughs> and and he's still doing it. That's right. Rand, still do it. Randy, anybody out there you want to uh, call attention to? or uh, you know? well, Yeah, on, uh, on August the 26th, uh, the Saturday, um, uh, or oh, Sunday, I guess. Um, the uh, the Civil Air Patrol is having a uh, uh, French toast <laughs> uh, breakfast at the Owatonna Airport in Owatonna, Minnesota. Huh. And uh, the cool thing about the Owatonna Airport is that it is the home of rare aircraft. And rare aircraft, if uh, if you ever get an opportunity to go go to Owatonna. Uh, it's a great thing when that hangar door is open because there is some uh, usually uh, any number of very uh, uh, distinct antique airplanes in various stages of restoration, and uh, uh, their their specialty is Wacos, but uh, but it's French toast instead of pancakes. That's a good thing. And, yeah. uh, and rare absolutely. Crap. And say, say again the location. Uh, Owatonna, Minnesota. Owatonna. Okay, great. Well, thank you. You know the identifier offhand. Oh gosh! Now I think it's OWA. That's all right. We'll look it up and put it in the show notes for folks to to check it out. Well, that. that's well, uh, Randy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for visiting the uh, the virtual hangar today. Uh, it was fun, and uh, I you know I have to tell you you were a little quiet, um, and uh, and I know how it feels. I learned a while ago doing this podcast that you got to like speak up, or these two guys will just run you down. There's just no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we apologize. Uh, want to have Randy back as often as we can. Absolutely, and, uh, Randy. Uh, I know you don't have a, uh, any personal web presence. I don't believe you do. Is there anything you'd like to plug or uh, kind of you know spread the word about? Uh, 
Uh, no, no, no. No? Okay. If, <laughs> if, if anybody has some spare 172 push rods, so. Well, there's uh, that. Yeah. And in fact, he wants to delete any references to his last name. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, check out the uh, Air Venture Today uh, archives from this past year and for that, many, many years in, for that matter, many years in the past. Randy's been a staff writer there, and he's written a lot of the great stories that were in that publication at airventure.org. Jeb Burnside can be, uh, you can learn more about Jeb and his work at jebburnside.com, also aviationsafetymagazine.com and avweb.com. And uh, Dave Hignan, his photography and his writing and uh, everything else at davehignan.com. And myself at jackhodgson.com and also aroundthefield.net. So I guess that's it for this uh, late night edition of the Uncontrolled Airspace <laughs> podcast. We want to thank everyone for listening, and we will talk to you all again next time. Uncontrolled Airspace after dark. <laughs> so long, everybody. My man, let the midnight special shine a light on me. Let the midnight special shine a heaven loving light on me. Now you go down to Houston, boy, you better walk right, boy, you better not stagger, and you better not fight, or Sheriff Benson will arrest you, he'll take you down. Okay, boys, thank you very much, that was good. We didn't even yeah. talk about the weather. Yeah, we didn't talk about the weather. It's dark, we can't see the weather. <laughs> That's right. Tonight's forecast. Dark. <laughs> Followed by light with another occurring cycle of more dark. That's right. Widely scattered sunshine's in the forecast for tomorrow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is your hippy dippy weather man with your hippy dippy weather. In Baltimore, it's 747.